You're listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message at 11 a.m. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. To learn more, visit mtcarmeldemarest.com or facebook.com forward slash mtcarmeldemarest. Thanks for listening. Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 through 34. I want to preach to you this morning a message that I've entitled, The Demons, Faith, and Message. The Demons, Faith, and Message. If demons could preach, and I think they're trying to this morning, If they could preach a sermon, what would they tell you about Jesus? What would demons say about Jesus? According to God's Word, demons can know and believe more sound doctrine than you and me. They have that capacity. And so what I want to do this morning, I'm not going to relinquish the pulpit completely. But in this passage, I'm going to let the demons speak to you about who they know Jesus to be. In Matthew chapter 8 so far, with just a single word, Jesus had cured a disease from a distance. He wasn't even in the same room as of the person that was sick. With just a single word, Jesus calmed a life-threatening storm. And this left His disciples, who were in the boat with Him, that saw Jesus get up and just with a hush, calm a storm. It terrified those disciples, and it left them with this haunting question. You can see it here in verse 27. Just look at the question they asked after Jesus calmed the storm. They said, and what kind of man is this? Who is in the boat with us? Who is Who are we really following? He can touch lepers and they're healed and cleansed. He can speak a word and people he's never seen are immediately healed. This this tornado-like storm hits the Sea of Galilee and Jesus goes, hush now. And the disciples are terrified. They're like, who is this guy in this boat? And the answer to that question is going to come from one of the most unlikely source. Demons. Demons are going to tell the disciples who this man really is. So according to demons, what kind of man is Jesus? Look at what it says in verse 28 of Matthew chapter 8. It says this, when he, referring to Jesus, when Jesus had come to the other side, that's the other side of the Sea of Galilee, to the region of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him as they came out of the tombs. They were so violent that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they shouted, What do you have to do with us, Son of God? 
Article 1 of the demon's faith and message is this. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. And Bo, thank you so much. For one moment, we agree with the demons. Jesus is the Son of God. Now, what does it mean that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, this is not the first time in the book of Matthew that Jesus has been identified as God's beloved Son. The first identification that we have of Jesus being recognized as the Son of God was during Jesus' baptism. Remember when Jesus was baptized in Matthew chapter 3, like the heavens stood open, the Spirit of the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove, and there was a voice from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son. And if you don't remember, when we studied this in Matthew chapter 3, God the Father is actually quoting an Old Testament passage of Scripture. And it's a piece of Scripture that was sung over the kings of Israel on the day that they were crowned. Listen to it. It's Psalm 2, 7. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. And it says this, The king, the king of Israel proclaims, The Lord's decree, this is Yahweh's decree when the king was crowned. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I've become your father. Now notice this special relationship in the Old Testament that the king of Israel enjoyed with God the Father. It's essentially this, that when that man was crowned king, God adopted him in a, in a way as his son. And notice what the, the next couple of verses say in Psalm chapter 2, verse 12, the, the following end, it says this in Psalm 2, 12. Pay homage to the Son, or He will be angry, and you will perish in your rebellion, for His anger may ignite in a moment, but all who take refuge in Him are happy. So notice what God does with this figure, this central head of Israel. He says this, he says, On this day when you become the king of Israel, I'm going to invest you with my authority. I'm going to treat you like you're my son. And whatever happens, if an enemy comes against you and you decide to squash him, do it. In fact, the only instance in the Old Testament where it says Yahweh laughs, he laughs when the son squashes Yahweh's enemies. And this other instance is if this king also extends his hand in refuge over a person. That's God extending his hand in refuge. What I want you to notice here is that the Son of God is not just simply about identifying Jesus as the, the Son of God the Father. It's also this theme that when someone's called the Son of God, God's authority rests on them and they serve as king. They have all dominion. They have all power. There is nothing beyond this man's jurisdiction. Now, it's interesting, immediately after Jesus is baptized, for those who remember the story in Matthew chapter 3, going into chapter 4, it said, The Spirit of the Lord led him into the wilderness to be tempted by who? Satan. 
And do you remember in Matthew chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, 6, it's interesting that in the temptations, Satan continues to question one piece of Jesus' identity. He keeps asking Jesus this, if you are the Son of God. Now, he's not asking Jesus so much about, are you really the Son from God the Father? He's really playing off this Psalm 2 theme. If you're really God's son, what does that mean? You have all authority. You're the king. You have power. You have jurisdiction. There is no dominion that is not yours. And what I find amazing is that after, so to speak, Satan is satisfied, he got his answer. Jesus didn't give him his way. He came to the recognition that day. Satan said, this is the Son of God. This is the King of kings. This is the Lord of lords. And in my sanctified imagination, he called a meeting with the demons and issued a press release. Boys, if you got anything you want to do, you better do it now. The king's here. And if he wants to squash you, what can he do? Squash you. So what difference does that make to the demons? And it'll make a difference for us too. Just hold out for a minute. Let's look at Article 2 of the demons' faith and message. But you've got to read the rest of verse 29. So they just identified Jesus, the Son of God. He's here. The demons get scared. And here's the reason they get scared. Look at that next question. Have you come here to torment us before the Tom. Article 2 from the demon's faith and message. Jesus will judge them. Jesus will judge them. Now you need to know this. Demons don't know everything. They have limited knowledge just like you and I. But there is one thing they know for sure. They will stand before King Jesus in judgment. It says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into hell and delivered them in chains of utter darkness to be kept for judgment. There are actually some demons who are in prison now. They're not free to do what they want. They're kept in prison and they are awaiting judgment. Listen to this verse in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. It says, the devil who deceived them. That's talking about Satan himself who deceived us. Jesus throws into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I want you to see the authority and the dominion and the jurisdiction of King Jesus. Satan is on a leash. And at the appointed time, and the demons understand it, when Jesus gives the word, they go to the lake of fire. Now what does that mean for you and I? Do you believe Jesus will judge you? According to the word of God, this same Jesus that will stand in judgment over demons will stand in judgment over you and I. Listen to these verses. They're going to be a rapid fire. Hebrews 9.27 Please let this sink in your soul. I'm not here. I'm here to use a holy fear. 
It says, and just as it is appointed for people to die once, and after this, judgment. We live once, we die once, and then we go to God for judgment. Look at what it says in Acts chapter 7, verse 31. Just listen, Acts 7, 31. Because God has set a day, he set an appointed time, when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. How do we know what man he appointed? Listen to this. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Jesus died for your sins. He's given you a way for you to come out under judgment. Proof of that is that God raised Jesus from the dead and made him judge of the living and the dead. So the way of salvation, the one that's going to offer you salvation and forgiveness of your sins and eternal life, he sits on the throne and you will answer to him one day. John 16, 8 says this, When he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world of sin. That means he will tell us all that we are sinners. He will convict the world of righteousness, <laughs> that God alone is righteous, that Jesus is the only way, and he will convict you and I of judgment, that you and me, we will both stand before King Jesus. So here's what you have to accept today biblically. I'm not going to let you out. I'm not going to let you back out of it. You may sit there and go, well, I'm not really going to stand before King Jesus. This is just a myth. The Bible does have a response to your story. Romans 1.18 says, for God's wrath is revealed. It's, it's out in the open. It's not being hidden. From heaven against all ungodliness and righteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You know, you may tell you one of the things I believe God has made evident to every single person is that all of us are sinners, that Jesus alone is righteous, and we'll all stand before him in judgment. And if we don't want to accept that, the reason is this, we would rather have our unrighteousness and our sinful lives and living without any sense of judgment. And the idea of suppressing the truth, I don't know how you are, usually when I pack to go on a trip, I overpack. It's about to burst at the seams at my luggage. Everybody looking at me going, yeah. And what do you do? You'll sit on that luggage and you'll try to zip it. And eventually you just can't do it. And what do you have to do? You have to unpack some things and here's what we're saying is that all of us know the truth and we got to be willing to unpack some things to call it like God sees it to confess it to say we are sinners we need a savior or we are under the doom of judgment but is there any difference between how God would treat demons and how God would treat us hold on just a minute I want you to see verses 30 through 32. It says this, A long way off from them, a large herd of pigs was feeding. And this is what the demons said, If you drive us out, the demons begged him, send us to that herd of pigs. Verse 32, just a single word again. Jesus goes, Go. He told them, so when they had come out, they entered the pigs and the whole herd. According to Mark chapter 5, 2,000 pigs 
rushed down a steep bank into the Sea of Galilee and perished in the water. Article 3 of the demon's faith and message is that Jesus can send them. Jesus can send them. What all did Jesus have to do to get them to go? Say a word. He just said, go. And I want you to notice this again. If you've got your Bible open, look at Matthew 8, 13. When, when Jesus goes to heal the centurion's servant who's home at a distance, remember what Jesus told the centurion in verse 13. He says, go. As you've believed, go home. He's healed. Here's the thing that I find extremely disturbing. This story foreshadows the gospel mission to the non-Jews, to the Gentiles, to the least of these, to the ones far from God. In Matthew chapter 8, we have every reason so far that Jesus has so much authority, He can tell a Gentile centurion to go and they go home. He can tell demons to go and they follow His command. But if you've noticed and you've been here with me, as we've studied would-be disciples, people that might potentially follow Jesus, He gives them the word to go or go to the other side. And what do we do? Maybe. When it comes to our following Jesus and obeying His orders to the ends of the earth, you and I, can we confess something? Can we test our hearts for just a minute? I believe the demons are quicker to go where Jesus sends them than you and I are. They know when Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth, go. They go. Those sudden commands are issued to you and I. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go. Make disciples. Baptize them. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded. And we won't even go across the street. But the demons would. Just like that. So is there any difference between us and them? And I think there's a significant difference. Look at verse 29. Go back to 29 because here's the real thrust of the passage. I love what the demons actually asked Jesus. What do you have to do with us? Now they ask that in complete terror and fear. The Son of God, the King of Kings has showed up. What are you going to do? They, they knew when he arrived on the scene, it meant their destruction. James chapter 2 verse 19 says this, Even the demons believe and they tremble. They shudder, they shake when Jesus arrives on the scene because our Bible teaches us that demons are beyond redemption. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 16 makes it clear. For it is clear that he, referring to Jesus, does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. We have a question that we can ask Jesus. Jesus, what do you have to do with us? Is it just doom and gloom? Is it just our destruction? Are we beyond redemption? Listen to what Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 said earlier. It says, she, referring to Mary, will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. While demons are beyond redemption, the two demon-possessed men were not. 
And if Jesus can save the demon-possessed, He can save you too. He has good intentions towards you. He is not against you. He is for you. He's not come to condemn or to judge you, but to seek you out and save you while you are lost and far from Him. What's the difference between demons and us? Demons believe and shake. Demons believe and shake. We believe and are saved. We believe and are saved. There's a significant difference. Now I've got to tell you a side note. Sometimes though, we have the faith of demons, or even sadly, we lack the faith of demons. So demons believe in the authority of Jesus and it makes them afraid of judgment. But notice what? They remain demons nonetheless. Demons don't repent. Demons don't turn their lives over to Jesus. Demons just say, can you send us elsewhere? We like to keep doing what we're doing. Did you hear that? We'd like to stay on this path of destruction. We know you're ultimately going to destroy us and rather face you in judgment. Will you just send us away to let us keep doing this a little bit longer till the appointed time comes? Here's where, the, where Jesus makes a difference between you and I. When we hear the message of demons that Jesus is the Son of God, He has all authority and a power to judge us. That we are sinners in need of a Savior. And this King has come down to save us, to set us free, to forgive us of our sins and give us eternal life. And He gives you and I, like today, you are being given the opportunity as the Word of God is being preached. Jesus is confronting you with your sin, His righteousness, and judgment. And here's the difference. If we really believe Him, we won't just shake and tremble at the thought of judgment. If we really believe Jesus, we'll repent. We won't sit here and say, can you give me just a little more time to destroy my life and the life of others? That's what demons do. But those who are called, they come to their knees in repentance and faith saying, Jesus, I surrender. I give you my life. It's at your disposal. Change me. And when you see that, when you experience that, you've come to know Him as Savior, not just Lord and King and Judge. There's a huge difference between how the demons respond to Jesus and how we respond to Jesus. But we have to at first give Him our belief, but our intentions are different because Jesus' intentions with us are different. Jesus intends to destroy demons, so when they believe, they shake and shudder. When Jesus comes to us and says, I want to save you, He wants us to respond in repentance and faith, saying, then save us. So let's see what happens. What should we do right now? Look at verses 33 through 34. It says, then the men who tended them fled. They went into the city and reported everything, especially what happened to those who were demon-possessed. So the, the two guys or whoever was watching over those pigs saw those pigs run off, <laughs> off that cliff and then saw those two violent men like in their right mind sitting down beside Jesus. And they go, we got to tell somebody about this. So they run into the city. Guys, you, you're not going to believe what we just saw. Like, okay, we just lost like 2,000 pigs, but, but 
Two men got saved. And notice the town's reaction. At that, at that, the whole town went out to meet Jesus. When they saw him, they begged him to leave the region. Please get out of here. Why did they ask Jesus to leave? Why did they, why did they not rejoice at the victory that was accomplished that day? And I think it has something to do with the context, what's surrounding this city of Gadarenes. If you know anything about Old Testament and what's ceremonially clean and unclean, Jews didn't touch pigs, much less raise pigs. A Jew doesn't have 2,000 pigs in his backyard, everybody. These pigs were most likely a part of a Gentile territory where the non-Jews lived around Israel. And these pigs were probably being raised commercially. They were being raised to sell. Now, can I put it into something that we would, it would be much more akin to us today? Just imagine if Jesus entered Habersham County and was confronted by the two most violent criminals that we currently have, and he recognized that they were demon-possessed. And Jesus, with the word, says, Go, but these demons run, and they fill all the chicken houses in Habersham County. Joe looked at me like, what? Just play this out with me. And destroyed all the chicken houses. I want you to think about this, because this is where it really gets home. Hits home. See, these pigs were not just useless to this community. They were probably the engine of the economy in this community. Some livelihood, income, families would be affected by what Jesus did. It's being truthful. Jesus saved the two demon-possessed men, but he killed that little town's economy. And this incident exposes the real value that those people had. And I don't want to point fingers at them because we share those values. See, when we really recognize Jesus has all authority we see that he is a threat to our way of life. He is. You ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, and we think that's such a bubbly great thing. Get ready. Get ready. He may say, that's got to go. Or he'll say this, I know you think that's important and valuable to you, but it is not worthy to be compared to this. So when we look at pigs, I don't want you to see just a bunch of nasty animals. I want you to see their wallets, their jobs, their values. Those went off the edge. Because Jesus said, they're not worthy to be compared to the salvation of these two people. And here's the question that Jesus and Matthew leaves us. He says, do you prefer pigs over people? Do you prefer pigs over people or swan over the Savior? 
swan over the Savior. And, and if we were really honest, even as believers, there's times where we would say, I much prefer my sin or I much prefer my comfort. I much prefer the way I like to live my life. Because if King Jesus really enters in and he takes up residence in my life, I know things are going to change. And I'm here to tell you, they will. Nothing rivals him. And he knows it, y'all. He knows nothing's ought to rival him. And he will put to death some things that may even be good things, but they're not the best things. When you come to Jesus, when you come to the Son of God, you have to surrender your entire life to his disposal. And if not, you just need to do what these townspeople did. Just leave. We're not ready for that. We're not ready for that kind of power that can rearrange everything in our town. Will you please get out of here? Too often, you and I fear what Jesus may change or demand of us, and this is what haunts me. Some of us would rather manage our demons than follow the Son of God. Do you ever think about that? We would rather kind of quarantine these two guys. They cause chaos, but we can stay away from them. But you know what, Jesus? If we let you loose, there's nothing you won't touch. So we'll keep things hidden. We'll keep things out of sight. We'll keep things in the darkness, the things that ravage our lives and will destroy them. We'll rather have that than let Jesus come in and change everything. But that's the essence of the demon's faith and message. To confess Jesus as the Son of God, the Sovereign Lord, with all authority, jurisdiction over everything, but never letting Him change our lives. To say that we have faith in Him, but we will never follow Him in believers' baptism. To know that we will stand before Him in judgment and not repent of our sins. To say that we are sent to the ends of the earth to seek the lost, but never go. And here's what frightens me. This, this passage ends with this extremely somber tone. Is our faith and message really the faith and message of the demons? Can we agree with everything the demons said and go on living our lives unrepentant in the destruction and devastation of sin? Or will we do something different than the demons and confess those same things? You are the Son of God. We will stand before you in judgment. You can send us wherever you go and actually obey him, repent, and give him our lives and let him change us. That's the question before us today. And if we're not any better than the demons, then God help us. I'm going to ask every head bowed and every eye closed. Thanks for listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. Please join us this Sunday at 11 a.m. To plan your visit, go to mtcarmeldemarest.com.